All right, welcome to episode 50 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Scott Barry Kaufman, PhD. He's a humanistic psychologist who has taught at Columbia University, the University of Pennsylvania, New York University, and elsewhere. He writes the column Beautiful Minds for a Scientific American and hosts the Psychology Podcast, which has received more than 10 million downloads. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic and Harvard Business Review, and his books include Ungifted, Wired to Create, Twice Exceptional, and The Cambridge Handbook of Intelligence. In 2015, he was named one of 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world by Business Insider. Today, we're going to be discussing his new book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Welcome, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me there. And thanks for, well, thanks for having me here. I'm here over here. But thanks uh, also for buying the book. I see you just held up a copy. Oh, yeah, right absolutely. On. I appreciate it. I'm grateful for everyone who yeah, gets a copy. Most definitely, man. And so we so so far kind of as well, Alan's already finished it. I'm almost done with it. And as we've been reading through it, like um, we were kind of really impressed by the breadth and the sort of scope of the, the uh, sort of the material that you covered and the sort of intricacy of it. Mm -hmm. So I guess for our listeners to kind of begin the podcast, I mean, my biggest question or my first question would be, who was Abraham Maslow and what was his hierarchy of needs? Who was Abraham Maslow? There's many different levels, as you know, upon which you can ask who is a person. Uh -huh. He asked me who is who is Scott Barry Kaufman, you know. So with that philosophical um, existential point out of the way, um, one level upon which you can answer that question is you could say he was a humanistic psychologist in um, during a period, an era where there was a cadet of humanistic psychologists who believed that there was a higher uh, higher nature to humans that was being neglected in the field of psychology at the time. And he was very much influenced by uh, psychoanalysts such as Karen Horne, uh, who, in my view, is one of the first humanistic psychologists, even though she's not often described as such. Uh, Alfred Adler, he was heavily influenced by. Um, and Alfred Adler was a psychoanalyst. Both, both these people I just mentioned were broke off from Freud and and had their and believed that, that humans were, were, were capable of more than just sexual and aggressive instincts. So there, that's the common theme there, and 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 Maslow really believed in in this this ideal of humanistic psychology, and he called it the humanistic revolution, which is believing that that humans uh, can be good, and um and 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 can reach a higher level of consciousness all by themselves. It's part of the biological nature of humans. We don't have to appeal to some supernatural god to explain it. Uh, we have this potential within each of us, and we can be a whole person as well. So we can, we can become greater than the sum of our parts. So we have lots of bits to us, but we can integrate it in really beautiful ways. And so he really, this is part of his philosophy. He was a psychologist, and he believed all these things. And then there's all these other levels that I talk about in the book of who is Abraham Maslow, more personal aspects of him, and and the, and the sort of. Uh, battles he would fight within himself between this need pull, pulling him this way and this need pulling him that way, which just so happens is human. So I wanted to show the human side of him as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And what was fascinating to me is that he even believed that people who committed atrocious acts, that even those people, if they had their deficient needs met, um, they would not necessarily be evil. Like if those needs were met, they could potentially be good yes yeah 
Yeah, he, he really, towards the end of his life, reconciled the notion of evil because that was a topic he really was fascinated with for most of his career, he, almost to the point of I would call it obsession, good versus evil. He he kept saying, well, we're, are, are humans basically good? He started off saying humans are basically good, and then and then he kind of changed his mind, and when you read his writings, he's like, well, humans are neutral. Yeah, and you know, and and then towards the very very end, as I, as I capture in in a journal entry, he talks about he said, you know, I should just stop with that dichotomy altogether, and we need to transcend that good versus evil dichotomy. Yeah, and so just uh, I don't want to really jump kind of to this topic because I kind of had a flow in mind, but whatever, I think it's still so important that in existential therapy, just like when it comes to different mystical or as you would describe them, peak or transcendent experiences, the person will kind of view the world as sort of um. It's sort of fluid, right? Where the dichotomies are kind of evaporated and the person sees everything as a oneness, as the sort of solidity. And what's so cool about that notion is that in existential therapy, and I think maybe even just psychotherapy in general, what the kind of goal of therapy is, is to get the person to see their sort of um, kind of quote-unquote dark and lightness, right? Or their dark and light sides as one, right? Where they don't sort of have to view themselves as either being perfect or terrible or good or bad. Where the idea is everything in life is sort of fused together and everything is in some way kind of... Um, Integrated. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And they, they had a term for that. They called it dichotomy transcendence. Right. And it, it it's something that I I, I I wanted to catch on. You know, I, I, there's a lot of language that humanistic psychologists use. They had a whole a lexicon that is not the lexicon of modern day psychology. And so I dared to try to bring that that back. It's it's quite a it's quite a it takes a lot of hubris in my part to think that the field of psychology would uh will 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 try to return to some of these um these uh words like growth and and actualization and freedom and responsibility and creativity and and social action and and just the themes that were so prevalent during the humanistic psychology era uh nowadays you see more topics like achievement and happiness and and uh, those tend to dominate and high performance those tend to dominate the field Maslow didn't I don't think he ever used the phrase high performance once he talked about peak experience it's different than high performance mm-hmm. yeah and uh, it's interesting that you say we need to bring back that that lexicon because I think psychology should be using those kinds of terms right it, it feels like the self-help industry is kind of the ones they're the ones who are kind of piloting those terms and I feel like if psychology would bring back that lexicon they would legitimize some of the concepts that are brought up in self-help in a, in a way that could be I don't know uh, I suppose if it's legitimized in psychology then when given to a mainstream audience or taught in schools since it's legitimate mm-hmm. then then people can recognize it as as fact as opposed to you know, you're, if you read in a self-help book, you feel something is true. Right. Or sometimes they use certain things to support their claims. Right. But, again, if legitimized, that would be Well, very, taken seriously. Yeah. Right. And then, so, Scott, what was it like from your perspective, and from more importantly, well, as importantly, from a scientific perspective to revisit Maslow's hierarchy? Um, what was it like for me? Yeah, from a research standpoint. Oh, well, from a personal standpoint, it was like a peak experience. Mm-hmm. 
from a research standpoint, do you notice how every question you have, I'm like, which level? This is why it's not easy. I don't. This is why it's not easy interviewing Skyberg SPK. Um, no notorious. Uh, yeah, the notorious SPK is not easy because uh, <laughs> most questions I just don't like quite a lot of questions, <laughs> and uh, and because I feel like they're so ambiguous. Okay. But okay, uh, um, from research with all. Oh my God, that was a tangent. From a uh, from a research perspective, it was glorious because I, it gave me an opportunity to spend a good four or five years scientifically testing a lot of the ideas from humanistic psychology, which one still stood up. And a lot of the ideas do, do stand up, and papers are still ongoing to be published. Uh, just got an acceptance a couple of days ago. I'm really excited for a new scale I created based off Maslow's writings about is there such a thing as healthy selfishness? And so I have a new healthy selfishness scale that I just validated that's coming out soon. Mm-hmm. But even my idea, uh, my uh, my research program with my colleagues studying the light triad, which is actually my uh, David Yaden's uh, idea, my, my colleague David Yaden, um, that, that was very much influenced by, well, my conversations with David and also the be love, uh, Maslow's notion of, of love for the being of others. And and why is the dark triad so heavily represented in the literature? But the light, there's no light triad. No one, what no one cares about people who are good. Only assholes are exciting or interesting. Is that true? I mean, can I? Maybe it is true, but let's scientifically test whether that's true. Let's see if there's anything interesting about you if you're not an asshole. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, honestly, uh, some of the best people in history. Um, I don't know. Uh, as you mentioned, the book Rallamay or maybe uh, Mahatma Gandhi as examples of, pe- of self-actualized people. Yeah. I mean, it, it, a lot of them had very good character traits and then they were still revered by others. They didn't have to be these evil, malicious people who got all this recognition, right? Right, right. right. And Scott, do you think that that's kind of why the sort of, I guess people are sort of more geared toward the dark triad because it kind of maybe in our culture, the idea is that these are the people who get ahead. So why not kind of study what it is about them that makes them successful? I think so. I, I, I also think that there, um, as Roy Baumeister noted about narcissism, we tend to really be attracted towards the aspects of ourselves that we suppress on a daily basis. So there's a, I mean, the dark triad is, is, is a human potentiality. Uh, it's very easy to fall, slip into individual differences language and, uh, or even type, even worse, typology language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're the dark triad. I'm not dark triad, but it's much, it's much, uh, so I think that's a lot of that's going on there where we try to, we're fascinated and enamored by the darkest recesses of ourselves that we inhibit. Yeah. And do you ever think that sort of there, are, I mean, I'm assuming now kind of based on your research, there is a sort of drive for people to understand the light triad. But I, I guess I wonder, my question would be, how come you feel like it's not the same thing for the brighter side or it hasn't been up until the point that you guys began researching it? Because for me, it's like the brighter side is just as, um, I guess it's just as sort of maybe rare as the darker side, right? If we talk about kind of extremes, there are very few people who are like the Gandhis or the Martin Luther Kings, just as there are very few people who are Hitler. So I'm wondering how come the interest was more geared toward the dark than the light. Yeah. Well, I, I should be fair and say that, I mean, there there is a lot of research on the light side, so to speak. The whole field of positive psychology mm-hmm. was uh, created 
by Martin Seligman and Mihai Chen sent me high in uh, Chick sent me high in 1998 to correct the record that there was too much of a focus on what's wrong with humans and not enough on what's good with humans. Kind of a a modern day off branch of humanistic psychology, but we can get to that because it's a bit of a touchy subject for me. Um, and but to put it on a scientific foundation. But what I was, what I think was neglected was a study of these positive traits from the personality psychology literature. And you just, you have a lot of people in evolutionary psychology. They really love the dark triad. Mm -hmm. There tend to be, there tends to be, and this is something else that uh, my my colleague Glenn Gear is. This is something uh, my colleague Glenn Gear is trying to correct the record. He's an evolutionary psychologist, but he just published a book. I think it's called Positive Evolutionary Psychology, mm-hmm. trying to start a new field. I wrote the foreword for the book, um, and uh, it was a great honor for me because it's a, it's a topic very near and dear to my heart. The field of evolutionary psychology tends to, for, for whatever reason, the researchers in that field get much more excited by, they almost get, I would say, a, a thrill, sometimes a cheap thrill, mm-hmm. out, of, out of writing about taboo negative aspects of humanity like it's just the data it's just the data. you know <laughs> oh rape, rape uh, natural uh, just the data just the data do you know what i mean and it's like okay okay that's fair enough okay you love that that's what you do but we need more people in the field of personality psychology and evolutionary psychology that get just as excited about it doesn't not everything has to be taboo for it to be interesting do you know what i mean like yeah. or are horrible about humans i think all AWE is a beautiful, exciting topic that needs to be studied more in evolutionary psychology. I think not just altru- selfish altruism. You know, the, again, evolutionary psychologists, tend to, they tend to love to altruism is really selfish, really selfish, the genes of genes. Why, why can't we talk about altruism as well as in, in its non-selfish aspects? Right. And wh- what would that look like for us to transcend our gene pull? Can we talk about that? Are we allowed to talk about being better than our genes? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and we, that- do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? I get very passionate yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and transcending the ego, for example, uh, which is mentioned. Are we, are we allowed to? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, is, is it is it is it against our human nature? Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. Um, actually, one of the things that um, I've been saying since day one of the podcast—it's already been like a year, yeah. I would say. Yeah, and. Um, I've been saying I, I wish that we could make it uh, popular or something that was mainstream knowledge of what the ego is to to a mainstream audience. Like in terms of maybe the working definition of uh, attachment to your own identity, yeah. right? And anything that violates that identity, you react violently to, and and you're you're this bounded self, this false self, right? And what's fascinating about you bringing it up in the book. Um, uh, even the concept of the quiet ego, right? Um, I think I think that's something that people should should know about, right? If if you were more aware, if you took a more objective stance of of your of your thoughts, um, you wouldn't be so. Mm, what's what's a good way of putting it? Uh, you wouldn't be so attached to them. You wouldn't be so reactive. You'd be able to uh, ease up a bit. Maybe have more resources to. Um, connect with somebody, right? Right, and ha- have a conversation, and have be better at reality testing. Absolutely, the fact that there on questionnaires and surveys, you do see people scoring high in the light triad. People, you do see people. There are substantial people who score high in quiet ego. Suggests this is what Maslow wanted to do. He wanted to show that, that these it exists. He called it the growing tip of humanity. He was very interested in saying the growing tip. You know, on a tree, there's a certain 
part of the tree that grows more than the other parts. Well, he wanted to study the growing tip of humanity. He wanted to show what potentialities were there in humans. In a lot of ways, I want to do that too. I don't want to, but also like Maslow, I don't want to disregard those naughty bits. I think it's good that we have evolutionary psychologists. We have some researchers and, and some evolutionary psychologists who focus on the absolute muckety muck of humans. Uh, and I, you know, but there needs to be a counterbalance. You know, I, I, I looked, I, I leafed through David Buss's uh, most recent edition of evolution psychology, and it's like chapter after chapter. If if you were an alien from is 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 horrible about humans. If you were uh, a, a, an alien from another country and all you had was this textbook, you would think that that's all there was to humans was aggression. Again, it's like Freudian in modern day guys. Right, it's reductionist. Aggressive, aggressive and sexual instincts. Everything everything that might look good about humans can be reduced to those two, and that was Freud's point. But that we I think we can evolve beyond that, and I should be very fair. I don't. I think if David Buss was having a conversation with me right now, he would tell me all the nuance, you know, um, and, and the fact that uh, he, he would have a lot of good points about the fact that, like, you know, of course humans are good at these other things, um, or, or, or have a lot of positive aspects. But I, I do wonder at what point does he is do they tend to then say, but what appears X is really Y, you know, what appears as altruism is really selfish. What is really Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, when there is something that it means to be human, in and of itself, and also um, to be a cybernetic system uh, that that wants to have goals to transcend its genes to, or to transcend its uh, evolutionary programmed goals. Like we can actually, um, this is the amazing thing about humans is we can have such great flexibility of goals that sometimes we can override evolutionarily programmed goals and that's something that doesn't get talked about i think enough in that literature right right and and also overriding our own self-protection system right uh by maybe taking on for example say we had a predis we, we thought that um, uh i don't know uh, just for fun say approaching a uh, girl right or or a guy depends whatever your interest is but you, let's say you're approaching a you think about it and prior to that you think oh i don't want to be rejected i don't want to this is scary, I don't know how this is going to be, right? And you think you know how it's going to go, and therefore you may not take that action. Right. But if you took a chance, you overrided your self-protection system, you may realize that actually from talking to the person, nothing's going to happen. Or, or potentially something good can happen as well. Right. But it's not like you're going to die. Mm -hmm. It's not <laughs> that you have to... <laughs> Yeah. It's funny, though, because I, I write about in my book, the social rejection system did evolve. And I do draw on a lot of bringing a lot of evolutionary psychology to my book is weave it through and try to talk about how we can overcome these things. But the social rejection system has evolved to be so powerful, which makes sense when you evolved in a small band of people. But in modern day, it doesn't serve as much of adaptive. It doesn't serve much of adaptive functioning for it to feel so horrible if you do approach a woman and and they completely reject you that could have the effects of throwing someone into a tailspin where they never want to leave their house ever again yeah. especially if you're an adolescent adolescent yeah. male so it's amazing that evolution has has produced such a powerful feeling but we need to learn how we can 
overcome that feeling. It's 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 it, it and it's it, think of it rationally. It's almost silly for you to never talk to another woman ever again because one woman who knows you know like she's a human too you know like there's a million reasons why she may have not wanted to talk to a random stranger that day yeah and so speaking of like overcoming right what i what i think sort of one of the biggest takeaways for me is that so when we talk about reductionist thinking right that it's either sort of one or the other that people can either sort of have either a selfish or a selfless motive what the book focuses on which i really loved is that it's often or at least at the sort of peak of self-actualization is actually the combination of the two so the people who are most self-actualized right are doing it for both right so they're doing it for a selfish purpose and for a selfless purpose so in a way sort of the dichotomy there as maslow would have said is probably Probably, or it was probably he would have said that it's transcendent and the person who is self-actualized oh, is yeah. also the one who's sort of intertwined or is more communicative not communicative communicative right sort of he's a sort of or she is um, the agent and sort of the person who is intertwined with their community so can you tell us a little about a little bit about that and how that sort of seeming dichotomy works together yeah Ruth Benedict the anthropologist uh, had this idea of synergy this idea uh, that Maslow was enamored by this idea of synergy and the fact that we can create a state of consciousness or being where what is good for me is simultaneously good for society. And he said at that level we of, of consciousness, of motivation, of being, that typical dichotomy we have in our society between selfishness and selflessness doesn't make any sense anymore it breaks down this is another he has a whole list of dichotomy transcending things and selfishness is one of those things so yeah i'll stop right there and see what 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 your thoughts are yeah well alan what do you think that's 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 a great question devolving it (laughs) (laughs) well so in my mind the way i kind of see sort of the combination of the two is um let's say for my work as a therapist right so um the way i kind of see it is on the one hand i have like let's say a sense of mastery when i'm trying to when i am successfully helping a person overcome a particular problem i obviously get paid for what i do right but then on the other end the other person gets something important from that too because obviously in kind of coming to me for um let's say for for a growth experience kind of for lack of a better term so when they come to me sort of for these experiences of growth or of mastery for themselves self-esteem self-efficacy the thing is the synergy there is together because like in some sense i mean obviously multiple senses i definitely benefit from it but so do my clients Mm -hmm. and so we can think of this in many different professions whether it's teaching um whether it's even being sort of a ceo of a company depending on how it's run which is something obviously scott you talk about in your book right sort of the way businesses can kind of um be reconceptualized to work in a more sort of holistic way and so the way I kind of see synergy, right, is that um, if you think about the bigger picture and when you think about the sort of long term, there's no real such thing as independence. That the person who is a, even a business person, right, a business executive, just a business owner, they're always sort of benefiting from their clients or their customers or their patients, and the patients are always benefiting from them. So the idea to think of the world as this, um, let's say, hyper or rugged individualistic kind of society or that we live in a hyper individualistic, rugged individualistic state doesn't make rational sense because in some way we will always be or ways multiple ways we will always be interdependent with one another we will i think that this is a, a point maslow wanted to make is, is for sure and he wrote that in his, his unpublished document the critique of a critique of self-actualization theory I, I i think he he really wanted to publish that before he died but um 
Yeah, he, he said we really can't think about self-actualization separate from the, what we think about others and uh, a purely individual psychology won't fly. We are such a social species. So many things that we do in our lives that to, that give us meaning that you know what the thing that requires us having meaning is its relation to other people you know without that aspect things just would really lack meaning you know in in, in so many in so many ways so yeah absolutely i think even just the fact that we do the podcast together like the three of us here synergizing in some way with one another the purpose mm -hmm. is not only that obviously that you or i or alan or whomever right provides information we kind of all feed off of each other and this holistic sort of i guess podcast right helps sort of other people see that like oh wow like the whole point is for us to live as a community and to learn from one another yeah and an even greater purpose is just i mean i'm sure the purpose of your book is to enlighten people about how to become self-actualized themselves and how to transcend and have those peak experiences and become fully integrated people. And part of the purpose of the podcast, especially the specific podcast, is to inform our audience about the book and, and the possibilities. Yeah. Right. And and what's so wonderful about Scott, your book is that it's not just your book, right? Cause we could see so much influence in it, right? Not only just Maslow, but obviously other authors and other psychologists and other researchers. So it's like this whole thing in some way, sort of the pinnacle of that kind of hierarchy, right? If we put all of the work of all of these different thinkers together in some way, it becomes this great book. And the book is really literally a community effort. It couldn't have been done, I think by one person. Oh, absolutely. The, the great joy of writing this book was synthesizing, but being able to read all these different, uh, the, even throughout the history of psychology, I found a lot about things from the 30s and 40s and 50s. It was a real, a real exploration for me. I mean, this book was a journey. It was not a, uh, I didn't write it for the ego boost. You know, I, I, I wrote it for the process. Of, of what I went through and, and the exploration was at such a level of nerdiness that felt very satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. And so what was it like for you to delve into Abraham Maslow's personal life, which to me was, to be honest with you, the most fascinating part of the book. Really? Yeah. You found it fascinating? Yeah, I loved it. I, so for me, this, so the intellectual parts of like most works are, to me, they're really good because I mean, I like it and I obviously like to learn, but I like more so than anything to actually learn about people. Oh, cool. Yeah. I hate people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're part of the dark triad, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm joking. I, I love people uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the aggregate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of select few individually. Okay. Um, so, okay, so. Wait, what, what, what am I answering? What was it like to dive into Maslow's life? Yeah. It yeah. was really... It was really fascinating. It was really... It was touching. Like, from a human perspective, I felt a level of intimacy with him that I think even freaked out his granddaughter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I I went to the house, their house uh, of his of his daughter, his only remaining daughter, who's quite old and has dementia, unfortunately, yeah. and his granddaughter Jeannie, who was three years old when he passed away. But he wrote a lot about 
genie being the source of his peak experiences and he wrote a lot about that in his journals mm-hmm. um, and I remember I read the preface to both of them at their house and I was like crying and I like tears and I remember looking up and seeing the look on their face like who the hell is this motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> Grandfather than I know about my grandfather. Than I, I think she said, I even care to know about my grandfather. <laughs> or I don't know. She said that I, that I, you know, that I know about him. I really should think maybe I should look into his writings again. So anyway. Yeah. What, what fascinated about it? What, what, what fascinated you about him so much? I think it was more of a resonance. Mm-hmm. It was more of a, a calling. I feel like it was calling to me because. I mean, uh, I'm going to articulate this. Howard, Howard Gardner calls it a crystallizing experience when you discover something in your life. Sometimes it happens when you're real young, but mm-hmm. it's never too late. I believe in late bloomers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you discover something that just vibrates on this such a deep frequency to your being, the core of your being, that you are like, yeah, that's it. That's me. And it happens in all sorts of things you have youngsters with amazing talent in basketball who watch Michael Jordan play a game and are like, you know, Kobe Bryant did that when he was young. I know. Cause I grew up with Kobe Bryant, <laughs> you know, like, I went to school with him and he was like, I want to do that. I want to be that. I, it's just like, he just felt it in his bones. Not only did he want to, but that he could. Mm-hmm. And, the reading the writings of Maz, Maslow is like my Jordan. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds really weird, maybe. No. But in that analogy of, well, if, Kobe, if, if Jordan's to Kobe, Maslow is to Kaufman. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. um, because I read his writings about self-actualization, and I have been spending my whole career studying how we can help kids with learning disabilities help people, prodigies, gifted gifted kids, intellectually gifted kids who feel awkward and shy but are capable of, of so much um, and are bullied. And, and just uh, like at an intuitive level, that's what I've been studying my whole career. But to be able to, when I discovered Maslow's rings and I was like, oh, that's what I've been doing in my career, mm-hmm. it, it, it really snapped into clarity and purpose what it was. It was like, and reading... Maslow's writings as well is such is like drinking fine wine. He has, he's such a good writer, but he's such a good articulator of the human existence. Right. And to me, uh, reading his writings is must be what it what it's like for Kobe to watch Michael Jordan uh, when Kobe was young, watching Jordan you know do such a seamless uh, layup, changing his hand dunk, acrobats. It, it looks like when you see something beautiful at that level um it it looks so natural right and so uh, effortless and that's what i felt reading razzle's writings 
So that's my best articulation of the answer to oh, your question. That's beautiful. And so what I really loved about Maslow's writing and the fact, well, his particular, his conception of self-actualization or his, rather his growth, conception of the growth hierarchy was that like, um, so I hope it's okay for me to get a little bit personal with you here, Scott. So I've had, oh, first. okay, cool. So I've had like similar experiences to you, not, I think on your exact sort of, um, in your kind of, um, in your sort of on your level or however you were frame it. But the thing is like when I was a kid in school, like I, I, I hated going to school, right? So, like, for me, pretty much teachers were like, oh, like, he's just really slow and he just doesn't understand the material. I mean, it's just a kind of is what it is. So, like, little by little, I was kind of put in lower and lower classes. Um, so, what I love about kind of Maslow's work is that what he does and what he pretty much, what he sort of professed was that for any individual, it doesn't matter kind of where you are, whatever your IQ is, we are all capable of growing. And the sort of self-actualization hierarchy or rather the hierarchy that sort of um, for us ends in self-actualization obviously for you it's um, from your understanding it's self-transcendence but the point is that for Maslow he said that no this is literally applicable to all of us that no matter who you are no matter what your sort of um, what, no matter what your disabilities or difficulties are you are not excluded from this and so what was cool was when you actually told your story about how you kind of found him and you applied that sort of thinking to your life and then in some way helped you kind of um, well helped you feel like you, like you were capable of much more maybe than some of the people in the beginning stages of your life made you feel you were. Yeah, that's 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 very true. Self-actualization, if that's your if that's your north star, it's a very different life you live than if achievement is your north star, or high performance is your north star, or or, or money or power. I mean, there's something specific about self-actualization which. I mean, I wrote my I wrote a book. My first uh, book for a popular audience was called Ungifted, mm -hmm. Intelligence Redefined. And I don't know if I had any Maslow reference in there. Uh, if I did, it 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 wasn't because I had discovered him yet. It was like just a reference. But uh, looking back now, when I read that, when I look at that book again, I realize it was a humanistic perspective on education is really what I was grasping for and which I uh, came up with. You know, and uh, from a lot of my personal experiences, you know, and uh, and 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 research I I put together, but it 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 really that was really the perspective that that now I can put a name on it and say that well what I was really arguing in you know, Ungifted is that we need to shift our education system to focus on self actualization, but I didn't have that language to use at that point, so I had a clunky definition of intelligence, which I defined as the dynamic interplay of ability and engagement in the pursuit of personal goals, mm -hmm. which is literally just saying intelligence needs to be viewed yeah. within the context of the drive for self-actualization. I could have said it much more elegantly if I had read Maslow's writings at that time in my life when mm -hmm. I was young, I was young when I wrote that book. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. That's so interesting. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and in terms of kind of the, so now kind of going back to Maslow, so in terms of the pyramid, right, we obviously kind of, this is something that we've been fed since we were children, but how come in your sort of understanding and your conception, you sort of reconceptualized it into a sailboat? The sailboat meta metaphor was, I should give Andy Ogden credit, he's a designer, mm -hmm. and it was through conversations with uh, a top-tier designer, you, you know, like, Nike has his branding, you know. What I, I was like, well, what can really be a good way of visualizing this for the for the 21st century? Mm -hmm. And because the, the 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 pyramid has to go. 
so I had I had other iterations. I had a, I had the idea of the concentric circles, which made it on the cover yeah. with the sailboat in it, which I think is the perfect um, uh, combination. Mm-hmm. You know, I could explain the cover at many levels to someone if they want to <laughs> listen to me mm-hmm. about it. But but after a conversation with Andy Ogden, I was like, I was trying. What I'm trying to get at is help me get at this is that Maslow didn't focus on the pyramid. He focused on the on the, the the relationship between safety and growth mm-hmm. and that dialectical between security and growth and how uh, our defenses can get us in the way and we need to have the defenses first but that's that's really what Maslow was getting at not the lockstep and he's like I think I got the perfect metaphor sailboat mm-hmm. and and immediately I was like you're right it's perfect and yeah I, I really think that it it, it really captures that spirit of and not only that but it still has a nod to the pyramid because the sail is the pyramid <laughs> <laughs> the pyramid's still there so it's got this iconic yeah. aspect of it but we can't fully open our sail until we feel like the boat is our boat is secure right from leaks mm-hmm. we have to defend defense defenses are good are wise Maslow, but Maslow distinguished between Growth defenses. We have higher, higher defenses and lower defense. He did with everything. He distinguished a lower and a higher version of it. Mm-hmm. But he did that with defenses. Defense, but our lower defenses are like ego defenses and um, when we're feeling lonely, you know, uh, things we do to protect us from the pain of loneliness, things like that. Uh, really, are wise. They adaptive from an evolutionary point of view for sure, and can be adaptive within our own life. But ultimately. If you want to go anywhere, you got to open the sail. Eventually, mm-hmm. you got to open the sail and accept that the vast unknown of the sea could bring you waves. Mm-hmm. You have to accept it. You have to. You have to really um, embrace that uh, growth at some point if you ever want to grow. Right. Or else you're just living in the boat your whole life, which can feel comfortable, but well, this can make you a little stir crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is that really a life worth living? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's safe, but will you, will you grow? Will you experience? Will you explore? Right. Will, will you see different things? Mm-hmm. Will you actually be well, alive? All those, all those, uh, the latter part of what you said were good questions. The life worth living question, I am averse to because I, I would never presume to say what someone's life to them might be. That like, it might be worth living. You so some Fair people. Enough. Someone who wants to live in a cabin in the middle of the woods and not ever talk to another human their whole life and just read and that actually, you know, for someone might be worth living. But I think those other questions you asked were, are very, very fair questions. You know, yeah. about and, would you lead both? Yeah, go. And I feel I feel bad that I didn't that we didn't ask uh, what are the characteristics of a self actualized person. Mm-hmm. I suppose for the for the audience it's important. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. Oh, I wrote a. Uh, I published a paper where I I tested Maslow's characteristics of self-actualizing people, just which ones still stood up, and I found that about ten of his characteristics still stood up mm. to the to, to empirical scrutiny. Now. Did you want to go through the ten? I mean, oh yeah, or just to name name a few, I suppose, just to familiarize the audience with what are these uh, characteristics? Because so far we're talking about self actualization as being something that's 
um, like a, a great North Star, as you put it, is, is a great place to kind of point yourself towards. Mm -hmm. I suppose just naming some of the qualities might entice uh, some people to see like, what are they getting into? What are they trying to attain for themselves? <laughs> I love the background. I, love I was obsessing with Nathan, guys, you said I've been obsessing with changing my background. <laughs> is this, is this, I think this is good. Right? Yeah, this is just perfect. We'll use that for, for the screenshot. Yeah, relaxing background. <laughs> yeah, do a screenshot and then do Twitter and be like, "Hey, just had an amazing chat with a notorious SPK <laughs> <laughs> on this sailboat." Uh, yeah. yeah, so we. Yeah, so we were just saying, so in terms of like self-actualization and growth, right? So the idea would be, I think, that it would help the audience to sort of understand what that could look like. There's there's various characteristics like authenticity, which is defined more uh, not it's not saying whatever's on your mind, not that kind of authenticity. That's called being an asshole. Yeah. But authenticity uh, defined as staying true to your core values in environments that directly challenge them. Mm -hmm. That's the true test of authenticity. Right. It's in a very Eric Fromm sense. To be sane in an insane society is a great marker of insanity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, also, so that's one, uh, we have newness of appreciation, being able to see the same thing over and over again and that you, you have seen over and over again and still feeling as though it's just as beautiful as the last time. So like every time I see a sunset, it's just as beautiful as the last time I saw it. creative spirit, having just this, just general spirit that pervades everything you, you do mm -hmm. of like, you know, I love openness to experiences. I love growth and, and challenges and, and thinking of things in new ways, you know, so that's, that's, that, that's one. Yeah. Um, and, ha you know, I think there's a, there's a real humanitarian motivation aspect to self-actualization, at, at least in the way Maslow thought of it, having some sort of calling, but, but feeling like, you know, also this is very Victor Frankl, feeling the calling is coming from outside. Right. And, and what is that, that calling usually has some sort of humanitarian purpose. It's or some sort of purpose that goes outside of yourself, at the very least. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, my purpose is to eat chocolate every day as much as possible. I mean, has anyone ever said that's their purpose? Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there are things that we find hedonistically enjoyable, but it's interesting. You don't see that. Ten that doesn't tend to be associated with, you know, my purpose is to binge Netflix. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, right. Isn't it interesting when you think of when people actually talk about purpose, it tends to be a calling from outside themselves. Sorry, what were you about to say? Well, I was just going to say, so in terms of meaning for people, and what we see is in the clinical settings is that most of the time the depression or at least severe or more severe levels of depression are connected to self-absorption, right? Whether we're talking about vulnerable narcissism or grandiose narcissism. Oh, yeah. I nailed it. Yeah. I nailed it. <laughs> right. So the idea is that people kind of think that if they go inwardly or if they try to sort of engage in these hedonistic pleasurable activities to make themselves happy, they will be. What happens is it's actually the converse effect and they actually become more sad because they feel more disconnected and more isolated from the world hmm. what a great I, I a great point can i have some uh, teletherapy with you <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i'll give you the first session for free right now right now you're you, you, it you got it free. you got it you're giving it to all the listeners for free as well yeah. <laughs> right now okay no that's right that's great um you, you are were you trained in um 
in existential humanistic psychotherapy at all? Uh, yeah, so, but mostly on my own. Um, so I'm like a huge fan of R.V. Alum's work, and I've read about seven to ten of his books. So, um, and uh, what's it called? We had Emmy Von Derzen on our show before, yep. obviously Kirk Schneider, who you know. So yeah, so most of my training has been done just through their literature. That's really awesome. You must have really geeked out when reading my book. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was really cool. So, so literally the foundation of my therapy is cognitive behavioral and existential. So like your work was exactly what I was looking for. Like it was super in line with my thinking. Yeah, that's, that's so great. And, and, and at one level, I wrote this book for, for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there are many levels why I wrote this book, but I think there's one level which I wrote for people like you and, uh, and, and wanting to inspire and, and also give more sort of modern day validation for these small group of psychotherapists whose orientation is existential humanistic. They feel like they're the, the creepy, you know, like outsiders of the field. Mm -hmm. And I want them to feel like they can, they can be more mainstream. And I, I really wanted to inspire them as well to, to do the work they're doing, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why I was so impressed by the fact that you're pretty much your book is grounded in science because a lot of the times when people think of existential therapy, they think, oh, well, it's not one of the empirically validated forms of treatment. So we kind of just sort of brush it aside. And from what your research shows and your book shows is that that's actually not true. A lot of these principles are scientifically validated. So it's kind of a misconception that here are these empirically validated therapies, which I obviously subscribe to. I love like ACT and CBT. Those mm -hmm. are phenomenal. But the idea is that existential therapy shouldn't be thrown to the side because every, maybe not everyone, but most people, if not everyone, struggle with meaning, struggle with the fear of death, obviously struggle with sort of freedom and what to do with their lives, struggle with sort of isolation and the fact that we'll never have this connection or at least a physical connection between one another. These are all like ideas that are prevalent to all of us. So to me, I guess to me, it's, it's, I don't understand why people will push it away outside of fear. Well, that's such a good point. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just am listening to you talk, and I'm just forgetting that I exist. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you're, you're, you're saying beautiful things. Thank you. <laughs> no, and then uh, I believe uh, Irv Yalom was pointing to, to those uh, four right. reconciliations, right? Right. The, yeah. the, four, the four givens of existence. Givens of existence. Yeah. Four givens. Right, right. exactly. No, we don't always reconcile them. <laughs> uh, you know, they're harder. Some of them are, are quite hard to reconcile. Yeah. But... But once you realize that part of being human is struggling against the paradox of existence, you realize you can kind of calm down a little bit, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so speaking of that, something that we focused on earlier, right? The difference between the silent ego and the quiet ego. Scott, how would you define that? <laughs> well, first we have to define what ego is. Mm-hmm. There's 472.4 definitions of the ego in the field of psychology, <laughs> and and 576,432 definitions of self. Mm -hmm. I did the literature review. Wow. Uh, don't ask me about the point four. What, what that is? <laughs> that, that that would be an awkward conversation. But anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't count that one paper as a full paper. But anyway, <laughs> all that all that digression aside, I like to just simply define the ego as those aspects of the self. So the self is a larger umbrella. The ego are those aspects of the self representation, self concept that has incessant need to be seen in a positive light. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Has incessant need to be seen in a positive light. Has to 
uh, defend itself at all times, lest we're not seen in such a great light. That's the ego. Now, having it can be adaptive. Having zero ego, I don't think is the answer. Um, but you want to quite turn down the dial just enough that you hear things that are outside of your own self, things that are beyond your self-concept, like other people mm-hmm. uh, and their own unique sacredness of their existence and here and being able to hear their perspective and to, to take a compassionate stance and a pa- compassion, open-minded stance to others stance is an interesting philosophical term which i take from daniel dennett hmm. um you talked about the intentional stance anyway um so i'll, I'll just stop there and, and see what your thoughts are yeah so um actually once upon a time when i was first learning about the ego um one of the four hundred thousand definitions <laughs> i i uh, i read this book uh it's a self-help book uh, power of now right and they define the ego as identification with um with a viewpoint, with, with your with yourself, with uh, thoughts, and view thoughts as uh, objects of attention, all that. Now, when I was first learning about this, I assumed that um, being present in the moment meant having a silent ego. That that was what the answer was, and that's the way out of that's the liberation. That's the way out of pain. That's the way to fully embrace uh, the environment, another person, take them in. Then you wouldn't be motivated to get out of your bed in the morning. You know, like yes. h- half of my motivation is like, I do want to do something. I want to like, I, I want to like, you know, like to take the need for self-esteem out of the equation 100%, which is why I do include yeah. it as one of the needs. It's, it's what you need to do is integrate it. Right. Yeah. Is that, is that what you're saying? I'm sorry. I kind of interrupted you. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm happy you did actually, because uh, that was, that was my initial, that was what I thought what it meant to be present to the moment. Right. And when I read your distinction between the quiet ego and the silent ego, I, I actually wish I read this or I had this kind of knowledge years ago when I was first making these mistakes. Right. But that distinction is very important. I bet you there's somebody out there who learned about, you know, uh, uh, flow. Uh, well, not flow. Let's no, no. Let me take that out of the equation. I suppose from an Eastern philosophical uh, perspective, being present to the moment. Right. Maybe they were confused about what it meant to have a silent ego and all that. And, and this distinction is very important, actually. Right. Yeah, that's all I'm pointing to. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's the integration. I mean, people, like the Dalai Lama did it right. Like, he, you know, he integrated, he gets like people, like millions of people everywhere he goes, like worshiping him. And you mean tell me he doesn't love that shit? You like you make <laughs> like oh you know yeah. like, oh I hadn't noticed I hadn't noticed that <laughs> that people worship the the air I the space I walk on, uh, it, uh, totally irrelevant, you know it, it, it he he loves it you know but the thing is I'm saying this with all due respect to the Dalai Lama here no, of course, he yeah. also <laughs> has love for humanity I think generally right. and there's so many other layers upon layers that are built on that and integrated in a harmonious way. And that's the point of my book, is not saying that we need to ignore any of these deep-seated evolutionary instincts. Right. But we need to find a way of living a life where we can become as fully human as possible by harmoniously integrating all these things. 
so that we're at our full powers, but also all of our needs are met right. as much as possible. I mean, you do it right to ha when you create a, a career or a profession where you have a purpose. You also have social connections. You also feel have enough money that you can feel safe and secure, financially stable. Yep. You have, and you get enough respect from your colleagues, and you do things that give you a healthy sense of pride. So your self-esteem is addressed. And you also, if you can, with the cherry, the cherry on top would be being able to have peak experiences in your job or even plateau experiences. Uh, you know, so if you can integrate all these things to become fully human, that's much better than saying, I have no ego. <laughs> and so I, uh, I, have, I have no self. I am just, I am just others. You know, you know who really, you know who that is? That's borderline personality people. Okay. Yeah. It is not healthy psychologically. To have no sense of self. Right. Just in the psychological literature, we call that borderline personality disorder. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. And then the, the main issue with grandiose narcissism is not that there is ego, it's that there's too much ego. So what I love is, Scott, when you focused in your That's book... That's exactly right. Right. And what I love is that you focused on humility in your book. So oftentimes that, um, I think the way humility is misunderstood is that we think of humility as, well, it's having a low estimation of your worth or a low estimation of your abilities. So it's not true. So humility is having to whatever extent is possible an accurate estimation of your ability so to kind of put this or to give you guys an example right let's say I don't know you were an athlete right let's say even um I don't know, you were like one of the best like basketball players, right? So somebody who is too much ego, right? They would say that I'm the greatest basketball player who has ever lived, right? Somebody who has just a regular sort of a modicum, uh, let's say somebody who has minimal ego would say, oh, I'm like really terrible, right? And let's say if we were, I don't know, the person who comes to my mind is, let's say, Stefan Marbury, right? Great player, obviously. Great player. And I just watched his documentary last night. This is why I'm bringing it up. It's actually really good. It's called The Kid from Coney Island. I really recommend it. Yeah, so for Stefan Marbury, right? So he was in Jordan, right? He was in Kobe, and that's okay. So the point is for him, right, he pretty much, from my understanding, he had an accurate estimation of his talent, at least later on in life, right? And he was... Oh, my God. Yeah. So oh, no, go on. No, no, go on. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, so pretty much later on in his life, right, he was really grateful for his experiences, right? Because he kind of, he knew he was good, but he didn't think of himself as like, um, let's say the greatest of all time. So the problem with the grandiose narcissism is that they're not humble, right? The way they see themselves is whether intellectually, whether in terms of like some other skill set, if they're basketball players, football players, essentially, whatever it is, right? So they have a, a bloated ego. So in their minds, they think like they're the greatest. They think that they don't need their teammates. Um, they think in comparison to everybody else, they're the greatest sort of talent that's ever lived, right? That's too much ego. So one could argue, I think, and kind of this goes and speaks to the work of like Dr. Craig Malkin, who talks about narcissism and rethinking it, and sort of other people in the field where we're talking about narcissism, we're talking about grandiose and sort of exaggerated <clears throat> narcissism. There's a sort of healthy side of it, which says like, no, 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 I have an accurate again, to whatever extent that's possible, conception of my abilities and my skills. Like, I sort of know where I am on the totem pole, and I'm okay with that. I don't feel like I'm the greatest ever, nor do I feel like I have to sort of belittle my abilities just to either sort of, you know, fit in or to make other people feel good. There's a lot you said there, and it relates to an article I'm writing right now. Mm -hmm. The tentative title, Is It Narcissistic to Want to Be the Goat? Mm -hmm. is the title of my article. And I'm actually want to make a nuanced case that uh, bringing in Maslow's notion of the Jonah complex, that a lot of us fear growth, that we all should aspire to be the goat uh, of, our, of ourselves. We should aspire to be the greatest. I, want, I, I unabashedly aspire to be the greatest Scott Barry Kaufman of all time. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what does that mean? That means the best version of myself I could possibly realize in my life. Right. Yeah. That's all that means. I don't think there's anything narcissistic about that. Um, and you should aspire, you know, to be the greatest Leon <laughs> of all time, even better than the Leon from Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> no, no, I mean the Leon, your full name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but the interesting thing about grandiose narcissism is we need to decouple uh, ego defenses from objective reality. So, I think that it's possible to actually be the greatest of all time in something and not be a narcissist. I think, you know, was is, was Michael Jordan a narcissist? You know, it's it's so interesting. I, I watched his uh, early uh, early career on YouTube. I've watched his rookie season. And everything. You get the sense that he is a fierce desire to win and fierce motivation to be the best but he did say when he started out he knew that he was starting from the bottom and that he had a lot of work to do to get to the top mm-hmm. and that's not a very narcissistic statement there right. narcissism more has to do with being delusional about uh, not just delusional but um needing to protect your positive at all costs i think you get the sense with jordan that he was okay missing a million shots um you know and and just he was okay if it would lead to growth he would do whatever it would take to lead to growth. That's the difference. The narcissist tends to not even want to risk looking bad ever. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. I wouldn't. So he's definitely, he's probably not a narcissist as far as that goes. But I mean, he did have a reputation. Psych- oh, yeah. <laughs> I said yeah. more. He's more, probably more of a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. I, I know he didn't treat his uh, teammates very well. And, and you would think. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't know that. Part of that is that he would hold that them to the same standard that he holds himself, right. which is which is interesting. I definitely I have nothing against that. That's that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, that you would just think that you know you want to treat your teammates decently, I suppose, because you guys are supposed to be you know playing the game together, and maybe having a better relationship would lead to a net better right. uh, a net better performance. Mm-hmm. You would think. Yeah. I don't know for sure. That's too much speculation here, but. Well, yeah, it must be. It must have been frustrating for him to, to if he had lazy teammates, you know, or he had teammates who weren't as motivated as he was. Yeah. He felt almost held back, and that that must have been frustrating. Yeah, that was actually Stefan Marbury's issue. That's pretty much like he was kind of like on every team he was at. He was like the best, right, by far. And everybody else, like, so what he said was that, like, after most of the games, when he was on the Nets in particular, so they would go to the locker room and he'd be fuming after a loss. And everybody else is hanging out, joking, and he's like, they couldn't, they, everybody around him said he couldn't tolerate that. So a lot of the reasons, I mean, I'm sure he was to blame for a lot of his trades too, but definitely kind of a, one, to put it into context, one of the sources was also the fact that he felt like his teammates were sort of a little little bit of two lakhs for him that's exactly right and i wanted to say uh, that i was joking about calling uh michael jordan a psychopath and, and i say joking because i don't want him to come after me <laughs> 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 he takes things very personally that guy he, he you know he's, he's the type of guy uh, you know there's a famous call between eminem and uh and jordan on the phone where they were talking about a collaboration and uh-huh. eminem made a joke at the end of the call like uh, i hope you come visit me soon or um so i can dunk on you and it was like oh, silence wow. you know like 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 and eminem's like i don't think you realized i was joking mm-hmm. so, oh, no. 
Wow. So I, I know I know Jordan's an avid listener of the Psychology <laughs> Podcast as well as uh, the Existential Cafe. Um, <laughs> so so uh, uh, if he, I did, I just wanted to clarify. I don't actually think he's uh, a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so to kind of, so to kind of bring it back to the hierarchy. So Scott, how would one sort of uh, what's the transition point between self-actualization and self-transcendence, which for you is sort of actually the real peak, right? As opposed to kind of what we learned about Maslow's hierarchy. How does one move from that to the other, to the peak, to the peak or the pinnacle? Well, there is. You're asking a question because there's a there's a there's a twist ending in the book. Mm-hmm. There, uh, I know you haven't finished the book yet, mm-hmm. so you didn't get to the twist ending. Ah. Uh, but um, I, I almost—I don't want to spoil That's it. That's okay. okay. You don't have to. You I'll, don't have to. I'll spoil it here. Right. Right. Um, is we think that the book is leading to this—that there is any such thing as a peak experience. Like mm-hmm. you, we reach the pinnacle, and we're like, we're done. Mm-hmm. But actually, Maslow realized very very late in his life that he he called them the plateau experiences Mm -hmm. and he realized that the most transcendent moments in our lives were didn't have to come from these he called them autonomic bursts Mm -hmm. they they could come from being deeply grateful and seeing the miraculous in the everyday Mm -hmm. and he called it a plateau the plateau experience he said like it's like lounging in heaven but not getting so excited about it mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I think that there's a more sustainable form of uh experience of life that doesn't have to be the the one-off uh rare peak experiences but can we can live our life more at a mid-level state of autonomic burst but we have a deeper, more abiding sense of meaningfulness for, and see the sacredness and miraculousness of very, very ordinary things that to others. Right. And I think that's that. That's a bit of that's the last chapter of the book. It kind of gives this curveball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have to necessarily have a mystical experience or a psychedelic experience in order to uh, fe- feel like this integrated person. I mean, of course the those can lead to uh, amazing, blissful, ecstatic, awe-inspired experiences, for right. sure. But Don't get me wrong, they're pretty damn fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- th- Don't really... get twisted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's very strange. I wonder, um, would you be... So, um, would you be against uh, recommending people to uh, try psychedelic experiences, or would you say like stay away from that and maybe wait for it to be legal? And I think that this is, we get in tricky territory with that question because there's the uh, scientific is ought distinction hmm. um, that we have to be very careful about as, as psychologists. It almost set you almost set me up. Um, I, I like to be very clear in, in, in all my writings that you have to live the life that works best for you. There is a there is research that I cover in the book to help inform you. You want to be informed by science. There is research showing that that psychedelics in a integrated fashion can be life transforming um, when done with a good guide, done in a way that you really keep it integrated into the rest of your life afterwards so it's not just a one-off peak experience you can actually integrate it into a plateau experience life there's 
there there's a lot of potential there for 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 but the shoulds uh, i try to stay away from the shoulds you know same it's, it feels like a very slippery territory like for example like one people one person i respect jason silva right or or joe rogan right i'm, I'm friends with jason i know jason <laughs> yeah so then then definitely you know like in a lot of his videos he's definitely uh talked about uh psychedelics uh, he's talked about the work uh being done by rick doblin at maps and all that and uh, MDMA uh, assisted yeah, therapy PTSD. Yeah. and and to see where well you know he's a he's, he's we could talk about the psychology of Jason Silva but um, he he's a dopamine junkie yeah yeah so he's got more dopamine coursing through that guy's uh, uh, nucleus accumbens. <laughs> 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 wow! <laughs> then I think anyone in the history of humanity—that was an unexpected turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's him, and I and I I appreciate the sacredness of him, you know, just like I appreciate the sacredness of everyone else. But um, most people don't have that much mm-hmm. dopamine in the in the being fed into the synapse on on a, ste- a steady basis. Right. So then based on what we, we talked about in terms of the peak experiences, I mean, it kind of seems like what you're saying is then that we kind of start out from this place and we try to sort of um, obviously move up this sort of, um, I guess, imaginary ladder. And then in some way with the self-transcendence, we kind of come back to where we started from. So what it is, is that it's an appreciation, I think, of what we had before, the sort of life that we were already living. Is that is that kind of sort of accurate? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to leave there, leave that answer by saying someone should read the book. Okay. <laughs> because it, it's hard when you go through, you work it up block by block. I mean, the book is a progression. Right. And it's uh, every chapter builds on the next chapter mm-hmm. in a hierarchy. Inter- I call it the new integrated hierarchy of human needs mm-hmm. is what I call it. And it's hard to, uh, to pull out one piece separate from the rest of the puzzles. It's because it really is a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. And and when the overarching gestalt of that puzzle is greater than each any individual piece, and 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 ultimately this this plateau experience is one where you you see humanity and you see yourself from as a holistic uh, perspective as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm happy you just said that because. The, uh, Going back a little bit, uh, backpedaling to the peak experiences, uh, I believe there was a point where you mentioned that there's a danger if you don't have certain areas um, taken care of, uh, like safety, uh, your uh, connection, health, self-esteem, self-esteem. Uh, if you seek these uh, peak experiences, you may it, it's not like a cure-all, right? You can't just skip. And and yeah, and uh, seek these peak experiences and try to skip all these steps. There there are a bunch of things you have to do before you even try to seek that. Right. And even that's purpose. A, that that's such a big point in my book because people try to catch me in a trap with questions on podcasts like, so how can one reach transcendence? Like motherfucker! Like read the book. That's not. Like that's the whole point of my book is that there's there's uh, there are no hacks to uh, we, people try to shoot for transcendence. I say that in my preface. 
people try to shoot for transcendence, uh, not build on a, on a sturdy foundation. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing's going to collapse. You, how many people do you have who haven't worked on their other needs and think that shooting towards like a yoga practice and becoming a guru in yoga is going to magically make them feel, you know, the need for not lonely anymore or, or, or they'll, they're now they're respected. So they'll be fulfilled. No. Um, it's, it's, it, 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 it takes a real deep integration of all these areas of one's life without shooting towards it. Yeah, I've definitely made that mistake before uh, in my earlier 20s, uh, especially with, yeah, books like, by the way, uh, complete reverence and for the book Power of Now. But the thing is, when I read that, I thought, oh, once I fully understand all the concepts in here, well, not concepts, or rather, I understand how to be and be present in the moment, everything else will be solved. That was not the case, and com- that was completely highlighted by uh, reading towards the end of the book. And one thing I love about this book, and I- I'm sorry I didn't already do this, I just kind of just finished it before we did the podcast. Uh, I know there's an appendix in the back mm-hmm. with all sorts of challenges and, and ways to kind of... That's right, yeah. all growth challenges. Yeah, and... Those... All growth challenges, yeah. Absolutely. And actually, instead of me saying it, what is the purpose of, of the, uh, the challenges? To grow. <laughs> there it is. There <laughs> what's, the, what's the purpose of the growth challenges? I felt um, bad. <laughs> I felt bad because I kept like talking over you and I was thinking, okay, let me no, stop. No. Sorry. Oh, no, no, not at all. No, no. I didn't mean to be, to be an asshole there. I, <laughs> I, um, I just, I'm, try, I'm trying to think. I, I just can't think of any other way of describing it um, than, than that. Um, you've really, you've really, I, I think I've cursed more on your show than, than I ever have cursed on anyone's show. I hope awesome. you're okay with that. I love it. I, that means you feel comfortable. That's cool. Yeah. I, I, I assumed that you're a, you're a anything goes kind of show, you know, where we can yeah. have raw conversations. Where would you get that uh, idea from? No. <laughs> <laughs> from, yeah, so, your, your, from your existential humanistic perspective. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the challenge is it's, it's to get you out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. you know, to not only get outside, get outside your comfort zone so that you can really get in touch with the the, the core of your being, mm-hmm. be alive as Karen Horney. And I'm such a big fan. I'm going to be publishing a, a neck, uh, well, an article in a couple of weeks, the underappreciated legacy of Karen Horney mm-hmm. uh, on Scientific American. So oh, please cool. retweet that or retweet it, you retweet me. You got um, it. Uh-huh. And, and so much of it is, she calls it, you know, getting in touch with that alive, unique center of yourselves. What is, what is that most alive, unique center of yourself? What, what does it look like? What is it? How can you, what does it feel like when you're getting close to it? What does it feel like when you're getting away from it? Um, when you have a lot of tyrannical shoulds in your life, as 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 as, uh, as Karen put it, right. uh, we're we're getting away from it. You know, when we do things that we think we should because it'll get us likes, or you know, we're you know we're, we're everyone uses the phrase virtue signaling these days, right? Mm. But when you're virtue signaling, are you really feeling like you're in touch with your most alive, unique center? Mm-hmm. Or do you feel like you're really most in touch with it when you say what you feel in your deep in your bones, regardless of how it will be 
perceived by others. Hmm. Think about that. You know, really think about these sorts of things and get in touch with that. That's what my exercises are really for. And and it's a different kind of appendix than you see in a uh, in a self help book. You know, because the goal is not happiness. These these growth challenges are not. I didn't call them happiness challenges. Hmm. Uh, first of all, that would make me nauseous. To call them happiness challenges, <laughs> Sorry, because I just feel like I don't know. It's not that's not me. Yeah. But uh, but growth growth challenge. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And it's like yeah. it's so interesting that somebody would literally some. If you know right that you are the only one who can really sort of be responsible for your decisions at the end, and you know that the life that you're living is really only yours and experienced by you fully. So why would you ever really want to sort of engage in activities in the long term that you really don't feel the intrinsic need to do? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I, I love that you can gauge where you're at with uh, selfactualizationtest.com. And I, I haven't you, done did it you yet. you take the test? Oh. Not yet. I'm going to be doing it after this podcast and also going to be going through the appendix. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, that's great. Let me know what you, uh, your light, dark triad down. <laughs> Unless it's too dark. <laughs> that one would have the to keep secret. Dark Alan. <laughs> You know, I you find people who score high in the dark triad mm-hmm. tend to brag about their scores. Mm. Interesting. So, so you just your response to that was a psychological indication to me that you're more on the light triad side. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my experience. I've had people very, very extremely high dark triad scores proudly displayed on their Twitter accounts, like look proof. You know, that I'm a bad motherfucker, you know? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense with grandiose narcissism, too, because a lot of them brag about, dude, you're narcissistic. And it's like, no, man, that's like a deficit. That's not good. No, they don't view it as a deficit. Right. They, um, I actually wrote an article about, uh, for Psychology Today, like over a decade ago, called Do Narcissists Know They're Narcissists? Mm -hmm. And in that article, I I talked about research showing that those who score very high narcissistic questionnaires, uh, not only know it, they, they're highly likely to say, yeah, I am, but also to be proud of it and to say that it's, um, it, it's uh, like, I just tell the truth, you know, or I just, I just live my life independently. I, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm great. I, you, you know, Tucker Max's, um, uh, yeah, he wrote a book, how to something, how to be an asshole. Not something like that. Like a pickup book or something, right? I hope they serve beer in hell. Oh. <laughs> Uh, no, no, he, he's he's changed over these grown over the years, but uh, I interviewed him in the early days uh, of uh, well, when he was uh, still back in the day when he was uh, very proud of being a narcissist. And I interviewed him for a, a TV pilot that never did went anywhere, passed, passed the greatness with Dr. Scott, and mm-hmm. <laughs> never turned out. Uh-huh. But anyway, I, in that episode, I asked him, you know, like I I I did a personality battery with him. And I read out the results. I said, you scored off the charts in narcissism. He said, well, is it narcissism if it's true? (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. But it's weird. Because I I said, you you scored five and five and I'm the greatest. He's like, well, how's that narcissism? Oh, my God. But it's weird. When you outline what the difference is between the light and the dark triad, for example, like uh, dark triad, impulsivity, callousness, uh, committing this... Oh, Machiavellianism, mm-hmm. right? Uh, spitefulness, lacking empathy. It'd be weird if somebody like who is actually, you know, they read that and then they take pride in that, right? I, maybe they wouldn't if, I, I, but still, it's uh, it's right. interesting. And then as opposed well, to the light, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, individual differences are a beautiful thing. And I tend to not try to judge people. Like, I have friends who are batshit crazy narcissists, and I love hanging out with them. Yeah. And some, sometimes, mm-hmm. in small places. Right. Um, and as well as I have friends who are just the most loving, selfless, like, just are not so self-focused people as well. I think that's part of that's what makes life beautiful is the fact that we are all so different from each other. And part of cultivating bee love is appreciating the sacredness of each individual. By the way, now my friends who are listening to this podcast are like, are they referring to me? (laughs) 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 Did he just mention me? (laughs) Uh, I wonder if my friends are now wondering which one of them I I just called bad shit crazy. But but, but anyway, uh, that aside, that aside, I'll say I love them. I love them all, yeah. and um, and I, I love Tucker Max. You know, I, I just I love I just love people. I just love people. I know earlier I said I hate people. Yeah. So now Scott, what do you mean you love people? Well, I love people in in the sense that humankind. Right. You know, and and when you love humankind, you realize that you love the fact that we're also we're in the same boat together no not sorry we're in the same, we're, we're in diff, we're in different boats going in our own directions but we're all in the same ocean together right and all of us at any moment can face the same wave coming crashing down on our boat no matter what direction we were going in before mm-hmm. and that's what we're all seeing right now with covid right so is that situation and in doing that and sort of seeing the love and the hate for people you've exactly done what you talked about in your book you've transcended the dichotomy i try <laughs> yeah <laughs> i talk <laughs> yeah. and, and in terms of covid right i mean uh obviously we can't change the situation right but uh right there's the victor frankl uh, quote if you can't right. uh, change the situation you can certainly change yourself yep in terms of how you react and, and what you do in response to the situation absolutely yeah yeah and then so scott obviously kind of so we want to be mindful of your time and i do want to ask one final question before we kind of wrap up is that okay Please do, because I have to pee like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, okay. Do you want to, like, take a break for a sec? No, no, just no, you, I can handle one oh. more question. <laughs> okay, so how, what's... I mean, I made it this far. I'm not going to bail on the... Right? <laughs> like, you know what? You know what? I just did an hour and 20 minutes. We're done. We're done. So, what does B-Love consist of, and how does one cultivate it? Be love is having love for the being of others, being, being love, not, not virtue signaling love or doing love just in order so that you get something else. Right. You know, like you see some people talk about like, oh, it's so important to be a giver, you know, because you can be successful. Right. No, no, just, just give done. That's it. (laughs) It's good of itself. Not so that X, Y, Z. Right. Be love is the end of the road of love. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's the highest form of spiritual love, where you get intrinsic joy from admiring and witnessing a human, and the sacredness of a human, like you get the same enjoyment from watching a sunset. You don't try to change the sunset. Yeah. You don't you don't say that damn sun was forty five degrees to the right and tilted <laughs> on its axis, and and was a, a lighter hue. <laughs> of you know then then i would enjoy it right you just witness it mm-hmm. so be love is all about 
admiring and witnessing uh, the sacredness of another human being, even if it's completely different than you, than your, your sacredness. So that's being love. I love that. Yeah. I love and, that. and paradoxically, it would yield positive results for you. It's not that you should be seeking those results, as you say, but that just happens to be a symptom of that, yeah. which, is, which is interesting. Yep, excellent. All right, Alan, final questions before we go, man? Uh, yeah. Uh, Scott, if we wanted to follow you, uh, where could we follow your work online? Um, okay, so scottbearkaufman.com has the self-actualization test mm -hmm. um, and all these sorts of uh, resources and articles, a lot there. The Psychology Podcast, please sign up for the Psychology Podcast. Mm. I've just started up my Instagram game where I include lots of uh, yoga poses of myself. <laughs> um, and you can follow, no, I'm joking. If you're, in fact, if you're sick of seeing yoga poses on Instagram or you need a break, go to at Scott Barry Kaufman, I try to post quotes and uplifting things uh, and humanistic psychology-related stuff. Uh, and, yes, yeah, so follow me on Instagram. Twitter. I think Twitter, SB Kaufman. I actually just tweeted something while I was talking to you all. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, uh, um, uh, not about you, I, but you mm -hmm. inspired me to tweet a Maslow quote that I love. Okay, cool. Um, but I will be happy to share the episode when it's out. And um, you might want to put a... Uh, uh, our rating or a profanity uh, uh, alert on the on the episode. Mm -hmm. Explicit. Because <laughs> yeah, I, did, I did a lot. I did a lot of cursing. But, uh, I, I but I hope it was uh, valuable to your listeners. Absolutely, so, I think it definitely will. And be. buy the book. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, buy thank, the book. Thank you so so much for coming on, Scott. Thank you, Scott. I forgot to pitch the book. <laughs> it's okay. I, it's like, that's so me. Like my, my publicist is like, why don't you talk about your book? When you, I'm like, oh, I forgot. That's because okay. you're in the B uh, realm. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's, that's a good, good, good spot. Great. Well, thanks so much, guys. And I hope you have a great day. You, you too, too, man. Thank, Thank you so man. much. Bye. All, All right. right. Wow. That was awesome. Yeah. That was so much content, man. We got so, so much out of it. That's right. And guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. Yep. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Yep. Uh, remember to like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. Yep. Yep. And then you can also find us at the, on, the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. You can find us under the STM podcast section, obviously Seize the Moment. Um, please follow our guy, Vegas Media Designs, who takes care of all of our artwork, all of the artwork for O4L, the artwork for the podcast. You can find them on Instagram. And then also one final plug before we go. Um, so are you stressed that you can't leave the house to keep up the routine? Fighting with chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension? Having trouble coming up with healthy ways to feed your family or simply need a support system to make your goals a reality. Vera with Verified Nutrition offers a free 15-minute consultation on our website at www.verifiednutrition.com. You can read more about her journey, you can read about her experiences, send her a message, check out her blog, or you can look at the, the services that she offers in order to make a decision for what works best for you. Perfect. And make the choice to get verified yeah <laughs> and transcend that's right and guys look forward to our episode next week thank you so much for watching we have we have solomon jenkins coming on who is the author of life is raw the auto well the biography of muda napoleon beale of tupac shakur's outlaws oh and also uh guys don't forget at the very bottom of our description you'll see a patreon link if you want to support us support the podcast get all kinds of newer 
better equipment, better mics, better everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so guys, uh, thank you so much and see you guys next week.